I think something that worked well for us in this particular work was taking the time to connect with each other, with each other's practice and with the material and taking the time to create together and collaborate together. And, you know, we don't always have the luxury of time. This episode of the Creating New Spaces podcast explores the creation of alluvial gold. Olivia Gold exists both as an art installation and a performance. It's created by Louise Devilish, a percussionist, visual artist Erin Coates, and composer Stuart James. Erin couldn't be part of the conversation. One of the things I really love about this conversation is the way that Louise and Stuart talk about Erin. For people who are not in Australia, there's a bit of background information to help to make bit of the discussion about remote collaboration make more sense. Louise is based in Melbourne and Erin and Stuart are based in Perth in Western Australia. This is normally a three and a half hour flight away, but during the COVID pandemic lockdowns, Western Australia had its borders closed for the longest time. It was actually just really hard to travel there. When you hear more about this piece, you might be wondering why it's on this podcast. And yes, it's a bit of a distraction. When I was watching the video of Louise performing, to me it was like Louise was playing a space, not an instrument. This really built my curiosity and drove one of the reasons why I wanted to have this discussion. It also struck a chord with me because of its focus on being immersed in water. Louise and Stuart, welcome to the Creating New Spaces podcast. Hi Robin, thanks so much for having us. Hi Robin, thanks. Thanks. What is Alluvial Gold? Um, so Alluvial Gold is a collaboration between visual artist Erin Coates, composer sound designer Stuart James, who's here in this interview, and me as percussionist. And it's a work that takes the Durbo Yerrigan or the Swan River in Western Australia as its point of departure. And so through our artistic mediums of sound, electronics, percussion, film, sculpture, um, visual art practices, we're exploring a series of stories, of narratives connected with the ecologies and histories of this river. I might just add a little bit here to say that um, with those stories and histories, ecologies that we took as our point of departure, there are two key two key things that we really wanted to explore in this work. Uh, the first is to do with a history of dredging of native shellfish reefs in the in the river. Uh, there was a lot of dredging and landscape manipulation that took place in the Durbo Yerrigan during European colonisation, during the settlement there, um, that saw these native shellfish reefs be completely removed uh, from the river. And the shells were subsequently ground up and used as a source of lime for building materials. So in roads, in mortar, uh, driveways, uh, things like that, driveways that before cars would have been horse and carriages and that kind of thing. And that that story really resonated with us and led us to want to explore shells and ceramics as a key material in the work. The second key theme that um, we really wanted to explore was the impact of 
pollution, human pollution in the river, and in particular the presence of heavy metal pollutants in the river, which are affecting the ecology, um, and in particular affecting the dolphin populations. Um, there are a lot of dolphins in the river there, and the presence of heavy metals, particularly lead, um, can really affect dolphin skin and their bone structure. And so this led us to want to explore metal materials as, as another source of inspiration. So the river is, um, you know, a huge part of our lives in, in Western Australia. The city is built right on the river. We all live and work quite close to the river. Erin in particular spends a lot of time in the river. She's a very skilled free diver and the river influences a lot of her work. And in the making of this work, we really wanted to try and create something together where our techniques and processes from our different disciplines of visual art and sound were brought together in each component of the work right from the very very beginning. What's it like to experience a, a lever of gold? So I can talk a little bit about what it's like to experience it as the performer kind of immersed in the work and I suppose that we really hope that it feels very similar for audiences. So um, alluvial gold is quite an immersive piece. Um, there is a blend of different materials and processes that are at play in this work. So there's percussion instruments, there's instrumental sculptures, there's field recordings from the river, uh, the Durbo Yerrigan in WA, um, there's video proje projection, there's a lighting design, there's a lot going on. Um, so it really is a very um, rich experience for the senses and something that I really feel like I am within when I'm performing it. I kind of hope that it feels like uh, audiences come below the surface of the river with us. So it, it really, um, we're aiming to make it feel like a journey beneath the surface to experience the underwater world that's there that we don't normally get to see as terrestrial humans. Okay. How do some of the themes you've been talking about end up in the sound and visuals for the space? The way a lot of the sound materials emerged uh, in terms of the, the composition itself, um, really also evolved through the um, the visual art pieces that that Erin was making. She was actively sort of diving in the river, creating footage or video footage there, also making some underwater sound recordings in in the process of doing that. Um, and the the score started to sort of be realized through through that process of these these different pieces that that she um, she had been developing for the the exhibition component of alluvial gold but yeah specifically though those those two kinds of materials so the the, the ceramics um, well it sort of really started with the oyster shells actually so through the process of um, well Erin actually knew someone in in the restaurant business and instead of throwing these shells out um, she uh, she was able to Sort of get quite a lot of these, and a whole team of us were <laughs> were cleaning these off, and and um, she was actually drilling them to to form this big oyster chainmail curtain, which became one of her installation pieces in in the exhibition. Um, but on the other side, while she was doing that, I was exploring the the sonic possibilities of of these oyster shells, sort of experimenting with, you know, or sort of dropping them or, or sort of working out their pitch. And I, I was going through sort of hundreds of these, trying to work out, you know, how, how can we use these musically? Um, I actually found the, the most satisfying thing was actually uh, to, to just grab piles of these oyster shells and sort of roll them in the hands. And this this became like part of the 
the the gestural language and and one one of the sort of sonic characterizations of the work um, that sort of comes back at various points and um, the other components so so the the, the dolphin and the, the heavy metals thing would sort of emerge more as a, a as a um, sort of a conceptual theme in the work the the score tends to start fairly light um, and but but it comes becomes progressively deeper and perhaps perhaps darker in a sense that there's a movement in particular that the, the well the seventh movement um, which is uh, called titled death in the mouth of the river sort of represents the the uh, the, the deaths of some of the dolphins in in the river due to the, the heavy metal pollutants and it's it's quite a dark and sort of pivotal moment for me in in terms of well just in terms of the way I, I was sort of con- conceiving that general sort of structure. The other factor is is that thematically I, I sort of coupled that with the the idea of the the dredging as well, that, that this the sort of overarching idea of sort of ecolog- ecological destruction of the river um, as, as another theme. And, and in that same movement, um, there's there's a loud dredging sample that uh, that comes in that's um, sort of the loudest sort of pivotal or p- peak moment in the work. You actually alluded to how some of the collaboration actually works. And it's the next thing I sort of really want to explore because sometimes when people collaborate, it's a very much a, a conceptual process. For you, you've just explained that something that sounds quite interesting in terms of the fact that you were helping actually clean off the oyster shells and then as they were in your hands that you started to work with them and hear them. And um, it's interesting to hear that love because it's a really lovely moment in the, in the performance where the, the shells are being tipped out, poured and, and rolled or rolled around, how that came through the actual physicality of it. Can you talk a little bit about how the collaboration sort of works backwards and forwards? Sure. Yeah. So the collaboration, Aaron and Stuart and I have worked together in different capacities before this project. So Stewie and I have made a few percussion and electronics pieces together. We've worked together in Decibel New Music, the electroacoustic ensemble directed by Cat Hope. And through that ensemble, we've worked with Erin when she's made video works that we have interpreted as, as scores or as part of Decibel, we've performed music by Cat to be the soundtrack for some of Aaron's film works. And Stu and Aaron have worked together a lot on some um, film works as well. So we had these kind of combinations of pairs of working together and we really wanted to work together as a trio. And the collaborative aspect of it was actually really important in how this work developed because we really wanted to make sure that we were all involved from the very beginning together. What we wanted to avoid was, for example, Erin making a film and then us making a a soundtrack or for us to make a percussion performance work and then for Erin to build a set that sat behind us or to make a projection design on it. We wanted everything to be very integrated. Um, So this was our kind of lofty goal. And had COVID not come, had I not moved to Melbourne, had the border not been shut for two years, I think we would have done this probably a lot faster (laughs) and often in person. But because of this kind of necessity of remote collaboration, um, the collaboration happened in little bits over a period of about two years. Some of it was in person, so Stu and Aaron working together in person, and sometimes I was able to get to Perth and do some stuff in person. But there was a substantial amount of stuff being 
physically posted, like oyster shells being posted across the Nullarbor and back, of um, audio recordings of music notation being sent between Stuart and I and the work kind of evolving in a different way. We had to develop a new way of collaborating together because of the circumstances that COVID put us in. And it was both exciting and like really hard (laughs) to do that. And so the collaboration has, yeah, as I mentioned, it's been over a couple of years and been quite iterative. So small chunks at a time. And we had a few periods of um, quite intensive creative developments in Perth, which were fabulously supported by our long-term presenter producers at Tour New Music and in particular Tristan Parr who we worked with very closely on developing and presenting this work. Interesting to hear that because as, as both of you were talking there was I was wondering about whether or not it's what I think of as a sort of response collaboration um, and which is where someone sort of has something and then someone else else as you say might put to a score to something and it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels feels a whole lot more like this holistic process you 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 have gone through and explored explored and lovely to hear about the posting oyster shells back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Jules, what's, what's your thoughts on the collaboration? Yeah, I'm 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 definitely I definitely agree. COVID presented some 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 hurdles, but but um, I, I mean it perhaps made the um, I mean both email and Zoom correspondences even more important um, I mean in that that process um, we, we had regular meetings online uh, with all three of us um, and discussing the, the nature of the work I mean definitely there was a lot of discussion on the conceptual uh, aspects of the work early on and I, I, I think lucky enough sort of by, by the time sort of the, the music started emerging um, we'd, we'd already sort of dealt with a lot of um, of the logistical, side and and explored sort of the musical potential of you know different directions Erin was very keen about the the idea of making sculptures as instruments and so that there was a little bit of back and forth between herself and myself when we we were um you know in in person um but then we had to sort of send those sculptures over to, to louise as well um to trial and and work out how best to hang them and it so there was a there was a lot of knowledge exchange also because Louise has had a lot of experience hanging many different kinds of objects as instruments uh, for, for percussion and um, just knowing where to place the, the drill holes and, and where to, to hang them, um, you know, for, for ideal resonance. And um, that, that was quite Im- very important with the uh, dolphin bones. And I, I was very conscious about wanting that the, for instance, Erin's pieces to have some significant impact on the nature of the score and um the way that happened was uh, well, well there were a few different ways it 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 was realized um the one of her installation pieces the the the, the chainmail curtain actually is featured in the the musical performance the work um but it's reappropriated um it, the original exhibition it, it was a sort of like a standalone piece um with with uh, interactive sound and it had some sensors built in, which I, 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 Erin um, got me to to actually wire into the the curtain, and I sort of adapted the electronics component to become an instrument. So it, it actually ends up being a performance instrument in the uh, the the music uh, version or music um, score version of the uh, alluvial gold. And another way in which 
the sculptures as instruments had some impact on the score was was that the the dolphin bones themselves the timbre of them had such an impact for me that so so iconic really and um i looked at the overtone structure of the, these and and that overtone structure became actually a significant part of the or defined the harmonic language of the um the score but, i feel like yeah. um maybe we should explain about these dolphin bones we've been so immersed in this work for such a long time. I think sometimes we forget when we say oh, dolphin yes, bones. Yes. You know what we're imagining. But I don't know if people are imagining we've dragged some skeleton out of the river or something, which is not what we've done in this work. We're very much, um, yeah, trying to tell stories that help kind of preserve what what um, the natural ecologies of the of the river. But just for a bit of context, there. Um, I mean, Erin's such a skilled visual artist. She's an extraordinary illustrator, scrimshaw artist, filmmaker and sculptor. And the dolphin bones that Stewie's talking about are not actual bones. They're cast from a dolphin skeleton, which um, during our research phase, um, Erin had managed to gain access to a dolphin skeleton that showed evidence of the bone damage resulting from heavy metal pollution in the river. And it kind of looks like the skeleton has been a bit nibbled for, for want of a better description. And so um, she suggested casting a, a dolphin skeleton using bronze to keep with our metal theme and porcelain to tie in with the shells and to highlight the damaged areas using gold, gold leaf. And we talked about what an instrument that was in the shape of a skeleton might sound like and how we might use that. And so we wanted to use these metal and porcelain dolphin bones as a kind of extension to the core instrument in the performance work, which is a vibraphone, which is a, a metal instrument. So thinking of using these dolphin bones as a kind of extra register off the top end of the, of the vibraphone. So in casting these bones and thinking about how they would be hung and therefore how they would resonate, we had to do a fair bit of research into the properties of percussive bars, vibrating you know, bars and, and metal and things like that to make sure that what we ended up with sounded more like a triangle or a crotale or a vibraphone, so a resonant metal, rather than an anvil or something that had a very dry metallic metallic sound. And the resulting piece, which I refer to as an instrumental sculpture, um, it's beautiful. It's absolutely a beautiful piece on its own. And like a lot of the components within the sort of suite of outputs within Alluvial Gold, this dolphin bone instrument can be displayed as a work of visual art in a visual art exhibition and it has has been in the Sydney Biennale at Heathcote Gullagadup in WA and a few other places or it can be integrated into the percussive instrumentarium in the performance version of alluvial gold so I'm really interested in using um materials in multiple ways in creating new music so looking at how can we use this material instrumentally but how can it also be a sculpture or a set or something else um so that idea of instrumental sculpture has is a another kind of creative line through the whole work and it was actually extraordinary in um sampling the and analyzing the pictures of the bones we ended up with and using those to inform 
the pitch set that some of the movements of the music of alluvial gold are based on. It's he's very clever. <laughs> Thank you, because I, I, I was visualising. I was actually visualising <laughs> bones that had been picked up on a beach. So yeah, thank you grim. so, <laughs> so much. And there was a little bit of me that, that had that grim reaction and I was visualising <laughs> the experiences of dolphins off the side of a boat. And, yeah. But it's, that's the interesting outcome for the project as well because essentially you built another instrument and learnt a lot from that process of building that instrument, a sculptural instrument as well that has those multiple different usages as well. It's a bit different to the oysters as in instruments as well because essentially it's the, the taking almost the inspiration for something and then designing it. Are you actually planning on doing other works with the dolphin bones? Oh, TBD, I think. I don't know. <laughs> we have our next performance of Alluvial Gold coming up very soon and we're hoping to give more performances and tour the work for a while yet. So I think we're we're probably going to want to really explore them in this context for a little while and then who knows what might come after that. It's sort of alluded to next question. There's always a creative work works as always a learning experience and there's, there's ups and downs. Did you have any challenges that you needed to, to get over, apart from that, you know, the dear COVID remote collaboration. I think this this work, uh, yeah, it's probably been one of the the most challenging pieces I've I've been involved with. I, I can't speak <laughs> from my other collaborators, but but um, I agree with you. <laughs> it, it, I, I think there were. Well, the thing is, when, when you when you go into a project, it's never really clear what that final outcome is, and especially with a collaborative project like this one, um, that outcome, it's part of the evolution of the work. And um, in, in some way, actually, I should mention that this this piece has undergone a couple of, I guess, uh, sort of re 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 revision stages, which have allowed to, to review really more some of the technological implementation and how the score is actually presented um, to Louise as the um, uh, percussionist performer and the, the initial approach I took uh, sort of ended up being you know far too complicated I think I was looking for the most flexible option but it, it turned out to be very very difficult and um, there, there's been a lot of um, sort of re review of that the the actual technology that that drives a lot of the electronics that drives the score that drives um, how all of these things integrate um, and especially to make this tourable, it was it was important that this was as simple as possible. And, and even the end product is is far from simple, but um, it's certainly a lot more manageable than it was uh, in its original form. Yeah, definitely some huge challenges brought about by the kind of um, remote nature of all of this. And I, you know, repeatedly through all of this was just so thankful that we had worked together before, we have a really good relationship, we know each other. And so it felt like even when things were really difficult and it was kind of hard to understand where the other was coming from because we were doing it over the internet, there was, there's, was a sort of element of trust there that kind of allowed us to push through some real challenges. And I think possibly for Stuart and I, you know, in some ways we did make it hard for ourselves because we were trying to experiment with an awful lot of things all at the same time so there's the experimenting of even just making a new work but then experimenting with these new instruments and then we were talking about how best to notate this in such a way that brought in 
improvisation, graphically notated material, traditionally notated material, material that had to be coordinated with a fixed electronics track or follow a particular time scale, you know, all of these things. So there were lots of layers of unknowns, um, which were really challenging to manage. And I think ultimately the fact that we were able to develop this over a really long period of time and test things out, I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do it in any other way, I don't think. Um, Louise, you're actually physically, I think about it as sort of you, as a percussionist, you're almost playing the space. And that's the experience of that. How does that actually also link back to the scoring? Because and I'm really interested to hear how the scoring's ended up as well. Yeah, in terms of playing the space, um, are you talking a little bit about like the physicality of moving between these instruments and installations? Yeah, and yeah, because I mean, essentially, as a inverted goblet player, the percussionist has a very different experience around space to someone who's got an instrument that's closer to their, to, to their body oh. um, or an extension of their, 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 their body. But it's interesting from my perspective, there must be something about thinking about that spatial aspect. Yeah, sure. So I suppose there's sort of a, a physical space uh, question and a sonic space question and on the physical space side of things yeah sure there were some logistics that we really had to kind of work our way through particularly because you know Stuart and I got quite excited about bringing in ceramic bowls and crotals and the vibraphone and the bones and all of this stuff and then just trying to work out well if we are going to use all of these things integrated with the vibraphone how are we actually physically going to get around them? So there was a lot of problem solving around that. And I recorded a lot of material and sent it back to Stuart and improvised on different um, like chordal structures or scales or adjectives that Stuart sent through. And, and that sort of then informed the pace of some of the material, like the actual getting around of the instruments, but also the resonance of the instruments. And that links, I think, a little bit to the concept of sonic space and how performing a lot of these instruments, um, it is really informed by the resonance of these instruments in the space, the resonance between the acoustic instruments and the electronics, um, which are dispersed using a quadraphonic array in the space. So there's a lot of listening and engagement with space for sure. Like it's a really um, key part of the kind of acoustic properties of the work, which then informs the performance practice of the work. Um, but Stu's a total es- expert in spatial audio, so I should let you talk about that, Stu. Definitely, the, the well, the, the physical aspects. If if I can respond to that as well, I, I, we're definitely challenging, at, and in some ways, you know, because you want to be able to visualize how something's performed. Um, you know, I think I think comp- it's very important as a composer to write material that is you know idiomatic for the instrument, or or it it you know it falls under the hands relatively easily um and then there's on the other extreme i mean there is obviously virtuosity as well which um obviously if if something is physically or just unrealistic (laughs) is is not really so much virtuosity it's just it's just not really scoring well for for an instrument um so i i I just really wanted to ensure that this work it it needed to display a degree of virtuosity but but on the other hand uh, you know being 45 or close to 50 minutes long you know that that needed to, to be sort of variable time scales and so th- those experiments with with Louise and, and the back and forth were, were very very shaping for the work and you know we were experimenting with all sorts of things like there was a 
rotating mallet gesture, I was, I was, I was sort of, I, I just couldn't couldn't let go of, of uh, for one of the movements. Um, ultimately, it didn't end up in the final version, but um, we, we were sort of just experimenting with all kinds of yeah different sort of physical approaches to the instruments, and and then the the, the sonics. I mean, the the real challenge with the sonic space for me was just not really knowing exactly you know like like the, sorry the the dolphin bones or the the bronze cast dolphin bones it I, I really didn't have an opportunity to hear them till sort of quite late because you know the time process of of casting these um was was also down to you know contracting company to do this and you know until I really sort of knew it it was it was um it was difficult to really commit to to something and uh, I, that that was a little bit nerve wracking, but on on the whole, I mean, things came together. I, I mean, I'm very very thankful for for that that collaborative back and forth. It it really helped the the process um, in in realizing the the final work. I've got a wrap up question that probably articulates really nicely after that statement. What's your greatest gem of advice to other creatives embarking on a similar type of journey? Um, I, th- I think I think allowing for time. Uh, I think when you're working with others, it, it's, I mean, communication is absolutely paramount and I'm not always the best, <laughs> best communicator myself, but, but, but really, yeah, it, it's just allowing that opportunity for everyone to have their, their input into the project and, and, and really being interested in what everyone has to say and offer in that process um, that I find is very, very valuable. Uh, in fact, what someone else is willing to contribute to a project is often just so different to what you would do personally. I find collaboration a, a, a really valuable experience. Um, and I find it so infinitely interesting like what, what other people have to say in, 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 the, in that process. As a, you know, you, you know what your own self tends to think in the, in those processes, but but not what others might. That, that's probably what I'd say. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, I would agree with that. I think, um, I mean, I don't feel like I'm an expert in collaborating or maybe in a position to offer too much advice, but I think something that worked well for us in this particular work was taking the time to connect with each other, with each other's practice and with the material and taking the time to create together and collaborate together. And, you know, we don't always have the luxury of time, but something that I think enabled us to make a work of this scale um, with this many different outputs um, was the fact that we had collaborated together before. And so for Stuart and I, when we started making works for percussion and electronics, we started with really short pieces, like for a concert setting, you know, 10 or 20 minutes. And um, when where Stu was very much the composer and I would come in and be the performer. And then we've also made a couple of pieces that we've sort of co-created where I've made the acoustic part and Stu has made the electronic part and we've taken it in turns in being responsible for the notation or the presentation and things like that. And so all of these experiences of each other's practice and way of working and, you know, collaboration preferences informed what we were able to do in this context and honestly with the whole COVID border thing I think without those previous experiences we would have had no hope of making something of this scale but what it's shown me I think is the richness that can come from building 
artistic collaborative relationships over the course of a career. Um, and Alluvial Gold feels really special and really personal and really like Stuart and Erin and Louise in a really lovely way. And I hope that there's more of this in our, you know, creative futures together. Thank you. That's a lovely wrap up. And I feel, feel quite inspired by the conversation. Thank you, Stuart and Louise. <laughs> Thank you for having thanks, us, Robin. Thanks, thanks, thanks for your Robin. questions. As I expected, collaboration is starting to become a really strong theme on the podcast. Collaboration is key to so much media-based work and working with technology. Despite its nature, it's interdisciplinary. One of the things that really inspired me about this conversation is how Stuart and Louise talked about wanting to make a collaboration. There's something that's more than just the interpretation or response of each other's work. It was, they really wanted to build something that could only be created by the three of them working to together. A few keys to, that I heard to making sure this collaboration really worked. One, the level of trust and knowledge they each had of their practices beforehand. Two, the issue's nature of how they worked. They worked backwards and forwards. Three, they didn't rush the process. As I'm thinking about these takeaways, I'm wondering whether or not physically having to mail objects around the country did have its challenges, but also did have to slow down the process, which made the collaboration richer. Thank you so much for listening to the Creating New Spaces show. If you got value from this, chances are that other people in your community will. Please share the link to the show with your colleagues and friends or mention the show on social media.